This is a Sunday talk by Tom McFarlane, titled Logos and the New World View, recorded June 22, 2003, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. One of the purposes of the Center for Sacred Sciences is to create a new worldview, or at least to help create a new worldview. And why would we want to do this? Is it just a idle academic exercise to pass the time of armchair philosophers, or is there a deeper reason for this? And of course there is a deeper reason for this, and just like the purpose of helping spiritual seekers individually, the purpose for creating a new worldview is to help spiritual seekers collectively. Our current worldview is a secular worldview based on materialist philosophy that was wedded with science a few hundred years ago. And one of the problems with this worldview is that it makes it difficult for spiritual seekers in our culture. A secular materialist worldview doesn't have a larger sacred context to it. And when there's no larger sacred context to our worldview, it's harder for us to connect with the sacred. So, for example, in a materialist worldview, the basic idea is that reality is matter, and we are material beings, and that's the end of the story. There's no larger context to the universe. In traditional cultures, they had worldviews, of course, but they pointed beyond themselves, as it were, and there was a transcendent outside of these worldviews that the worldviews acknowledged and pointed to. So... Even though there was a worldview, there was something acknowledged that was beyond that, that could provide a sacred context to life and a, and a sense of a deeper meaning that could be connected to. And so in our culture, we don't have this. And so one of the purposes of the center is to help foster the creation of a sacred worldview. Well, in modern times, this is difficult for a couple of reasons. One is that the traditional sacred worldviews are a little bit outdated. The metaphors and symbols that they use are uh, difficult to relate to simply because many of them were created thousands of years ago in different circumstances. Another reason is that modern science has come along and not only shifted our worldview and replaced it with something quite different, but added a whole new dimension that really wasn't present in these traditional worldviews, which is the mathematical description of nature and the laws of nature that, for example, physics has discovered that have allowed things like modern technology to emerge, things that simply weren't possible in traditional worldviews that didn't have science, and in particular, mathematically-based science. So in our worldview today, we have this problem. It creates a kind of dilemma where... Do we throw out the science and go back to some traditional sacred worldview? And if we do that, which one do we pick? There are various ones to choose from. Or do we lock onto science and reject all of the traditional worldviews? And this seems like a kind of dilemma. And the question is, is it possible to have a worldview in which one can coherently view both the teachings of the mystics that are found in all of the religious traditions and also in that same worldview, understand how it is that science can exist and be and function. And it's interesting as a little aside that science itself doesn't understand how science functions. The fact that mathematics, which is just a free creation of the human mind, somehow works so well in physics to describe how the world works is really kind of mysterious. How is it that things that we dream up mathematically in our own minds correlate so perfectly with the outer world? And this becomes more and more mysterious the deeper you go into, into science. Mathematicians will dream up mathematical ideas, and a hundred years later, suddenly it'll turn out that they're very useful in physics. This happened, for example, with general relativity. The mathematics was invented decades before Einstein came along, and he just uh, said, oh, well, the mathematics is already here, we just have to interpret it and give it a physical meaning. There are many other cases where this happened as well, such as group theory that has applications in particle physics and so on. There are lots of examples of how this mystery is inexplicable from a materialist point of view. And in addition, 
from this materialist point of view, many of the teachings in the sacred traditions are also kind of incomprehensible and unintelligible. For example, we have in the Gospel of John, the opening chapter reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. <laughs> if you were steeped in Christian theology and lived maybe five, six, seven hundred years ago, that would be completely intelligible to you. You'd know what that meant. But in our culture, it really doesn't make sense. In a materialist paradigm, how do you make sense of this idea that things are made by words and, and words are with God and and what does all this mean, and how could you possibly make sense of that? Well, things are, are atoms, and they're bouncing around, and what does this have to do with God and words and things? So how can we make sense of this? Is it, is it possible to take a passage like this and make sense of it in a framework in which we can also make sense of mathematics and science? And I'm going to argue today, and maybe convince you that this is possible. So by the end of this talk... We'll uh, read this passage again, and hopefully it'll make perfect sense to us, and we'll see how it is that it can connect with physics and mathematics. So the key to this is to find a kind of language, an archetypal symbol, that can be the basis for both of these. Obviously, there are, there are many differences between mathematics and the kind of symbolic language used in theology and in the Gospels and so on. But if we can find some kind of language or symbol that can translate between the two, then we might have a, a chance of accomplishing this goal. Now the language of science is logic and mathematics. And the word logic, interestingly, comes from a Greek word. The word is logos. And if you look up logos in a Greek dictionary, it says that it has two basic meanings. One is that it means uh, an inner thought or reason. And the other is the power by which that inner thought is expressed. For example, in language and speech. And this word also has other correlations that have come down to us in our English language. One is, for example, the word prologue. The log comes from logos, and the pro means before. And so the prologue is the, the speech before something else. The word monologue, mono means single or one, and log, again, means speech, and so this is the speech of one person, a monologue. And there are many other instances. Uh, cosmology is the logos, the reasoning, the structure of the cosmos. And theology is the, the reasoning or structure or thought about theos or God. And so this is another way that this word has come down in our language. And so if we were to reread this passage of the Gospel of John, replacing the word with logos, and in that passage when it says, in the beginning was the word, that word, word, is a translation of logos. So we could reread it and it would say, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, the logos was in the beginning with God, all things were made by the Logos, and without the Logos was not anything made that was made. Okay, so have we made any progress here? <laughs> well, of course, Logos in Christian theology is identified with Christ, and this is an aspect of the divine trinity. In particular, it's the aspect of divine manifestation, and so the idea is that the divine speech, the divine reason, is expressed through the Logos in the process of manifestation. So everything is made through the Logos. As it says in Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so it's through this divine act of speech that things are created. Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic in the Middle Ages, elaborates on this a little bit. He says, all things are God's speech. The being of a stone speaks and manifests the same as my mouth about God. So, for example, this gong here in my hand 
is the speech of God. Right here, its very existence is that speech. He says in another place, if God stopped saying his word, which is the Logos, but even for an instant, heaven and earth would disappear. So the, the very continued existence of everything is the continued speech of God, the continued manifestation of the Logos. So how can we get more of a experiential sense of what this means rather than just thinking about all of this? Well, if I say a word like blackboard, there's a blackboard right here on my side. What happens? Well, hopefully, if that word means anything to you, your attention is directed over here to this rectangular object in your visual field. And so what that word is doing is it's directing your attention. And your attention is directed towards this part of what's appearing in your visual field. And so this word has this power to draw a distinction around this object and to focus attention on what's inside of that distinction and kind of ignore everything else. And this works with other things as well. So for example, your foot has a sensation in it which you probably weren't aware of before I said that. <laughs> but now your attention was suddenly directed there into the field of your bodily sensations to a particular type of sensation down there in one of your feet. I didn't say which one, so you had to pick there. And so a distinction again was drawn, and you ignored the visual field and everything else and kind of focused attention there. And so again, there was a kind of distinction drawn around that sensation, and everything else was kind of ignored. Now, where was that sensation before I said your foot? Did it exist? What happened there in that directing of attention? Chalkboard. Was it existing before I said that? I mean, we can think that it did, but in your actual experience, were you experiencing the presence of a chalkboard before I said that word? Or was there a sense in which the direction of your attention kind of brought that into existence. That might have something to do with how something like the word can bring something into existence. The word existence literally means to stand out. And so for something to exist simply means for it to stand out from like a background. And so when attention, for example, gets directed towards the chalkboard, that action of attention to draw that distinction makes the chalkboard stand out. It wasn't standing out. It was maybe in the periphery of awareness before, but now attention's directed towards that and it brings it into existence. Now this teaching isn't restricted to Christianity. We find it in all the different religious traditions. <clears throat> so for example, Huang Po one of the founders of Zen Buddhism, said, every phenomenon that exists is a creation of thought. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Rumi, the Sufi, said, the root of all things is speech and words. God Most High created the world from a word, for he said, be, and it is. Shankara, the Hindu mystic, said, apart from the absolute, nothing else differs from name and form. Gershom Sholem, a Kabbalist, says the first act of all is not an act of revelation, but one of limitation. Every new act of emanation and manifestation is preceded by one of concentration and retraction. This is interesting, because isn't this what was kind of happening when we direct attention to the chalkboard? There's an elimination of everything else. In order for that to stand out, you have to ignore everything else. In awareness. And so part of this standing out involves a blanking out or ignoring of everything else that's present. Ibn Arabi, who was a Sufi philosopher and mystic, said, the root of all things is difference. So this idea of drawing a distinction around something, it's the root of all things. Lao Tzu, 
the Taoist who wrote the Tao Te Ching, said the named is the mother of the 10,000 things, all the myriad things that are created. And Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, says the first departure from the one, which is his word from the absolute non-dual reality of the Godhead, the first departure from that, the first fall of all, is from the one into two, from unity into number, undivided and indistinct into division and distinction. And so the first thing that happens is the drawing of a distinction. So this activity or power of distinction is the fundamental principle or archetype that the mystics, at least, say is the root of all manifestation. So can we find this teaching also in science and mathematics? Well, to do that, we have to go a little bit back in history to the roots of science and mathematics. And if we go all the way back to the origin of mathematics in the West, we find a mathematician who was also a mystic. His name was Pythagoras. You might know him from uh, the Pythagorean theorem. The other thing about Pythagoras is that he had this idea that everything is number, that the whole world manifests through the principle of number. For him, the numbers weren't just kind of numerical quantities. These were more like archetypal principles at work in the world. They, they had a, a sense of uh, activity and power to them. And some of his examples of how number manifested in the world was, for example, in music. If you take a string and you pluck it, and then you divide it in half and then pluck that, you've divided the length of the string into two equal parts. And so there's a mathematical, a, a pure mathematical relationship between those two parts. And it turns out that the tone that you hear uh, from plucking the half of the string and the whole of the string, that's exactly an octave. And so an octave is a pure mathematical relationship. And all the other intervals in music correspond to simple mathematical ratios of numbers, 2 to 3, 3 to 4, and so on. If you have a simple uh, ratio between the lengths of the string, you get pleasing harmonics. The whole harmony that we hear in music is mathematical in nature. It has to do with these fundamental ratios of numbers. So the whole cosmos is this kind of beautiful order, and the beauty and the order of it comes from mathematics and these simple ratios of numbers and things. So this was kind of the fundamental idea that Pythagoras had, and it was really the seminal insight for all of science and mathematics in the West. And so if you trace all of science backwards, you kind of run into Pythagoras. And this basic idea that somehow uh, built into nature and the cosmos is this order of mathematics. And if you look at mathematics, modern mathematics, you find that it's all reduced to one idea, which is the idea of a set. And what is a set? Well, it's basically a distinction. My body, in materialist terms, could be described as the set of all the physical matter contained within my skin. The chalkboard can be described as a set of everything within this particular region of space. Eugene can be described as a set of everything within the city limits. The city limits is drawing a distinction, isn't it? And so this idea of a set is really the idea of drawing a distinction, and what's contained in the set is what's inside of that distinction. And in modern mathematics, every mathematical object is a set. For example, the numbers 0, 1, 2, 3 are described as the most basic sets. If you use brackets, I'm just going to draw on the chalkboard here some brackets. Within these two brackets here is nothing. And that's the simplest set you can have. It's the set that doesn't contain anything. But it's still something. It's a set. 
and that we call zero. And then if we make a set that contains this set, so I'll draw some brackets here, and then within these brackets, I'll put this set that I just drew, and we'll call that one. And then we can keep repeating this process. We can put this set into another set. So we have three squiggly brackets now, and these are all nested within each other. And this, of course, is two. And you just continue this process of nesting these sets within sets within sets. And then we can uh, continue this process. I won't go into the details, but you can get uh, fractions by taking ordered pairs of numbers. And so you can build up all the rational numbers like this, and you can get more complicated and build up all the other numbers as well. And so all the numbers in mathematics are basically sets. And there are other ideas in mathematics that are sets as well. It may not be quite as obvious. So if I were to draw a circle on the blackboard, this is a set of points on the blackboard. And the set of points corresponds to a set of numbers. And those numbers actually satisfy an equation, if you remember your high school analytic geometry, x squared plus y squared equals 1 or some other number is the equation for a circle. And the idea is that any pair of numbers that satisfies that equation will correspond to the set of points that form a perfect circle. And so circles are basically sets. So that gives you a sense of how everything in mathematics are basically reduced to these sets. And what's very interesting is that more recently, in this book called The Laws of Form by G. Spencer Brown, he shows that using the idea of distinction, which is basically the idea of making a set of something, using the idea of distinction, we can also derive the very laws of reason and thought, the laws of logic can be seen as flowing out of the very idea of making a distinction. I won't go into the details because they get kind of intricate. You can check out the book and study them if you want to know all the details. But I'll try and give you the essence of the idea. He starts with making a distinction, such as drawing a circle on a blackboard. And then he reflects on this and comes up with a couple axioms. Each one is a different equation. And these axioms involve properties of distinctions. And then he derives from these a kind of elementary arithmetic. The basic idea is that a distinction is one value in this arithmetic, and the lack of a distinction is another value. And so the empty chalkboard would be like zero. And if I drew a distinction on the chalkboard, that would be like one. And those are the only two numbers in this elementary arithmetic he develops. Distinction and no distinction. He develops all these kinds of equations, how you add 1 plus 1 and you get 0, and things like this. And these numbers, 1 and 0, play with each other. And it's basically, if you know anything about binary arithmetic, it's very similar to binary arithmetic. It turns out, though, that it's actually a kind of logical arithmetic. It's more like these values are true and false. And he develops an algebra that describes the laws of these two values. And it turns out that this algebra corresponds to the laws of logic. In particular, you can make a perfect map between his algebraic laws and what's called Boolean logic. And so, not only do all the objects in mathematics reduce to this fundamental idea of making a distinction, but the very laws of thought the logic itself reduces to this idea of making a distinction. And it can all be seen as flowing out of this single idea of making a distinction. So all the objects in the world, all the laws of thought, and all the laws of physics can all be seen as flowing out of this basic idea of making a distinction. So let's go back to this passage in the Gospel of John and see if, 
if it illuminates this at all, what we've said. It does illuminate the last part, which says that all things were made by the Logos, and without the Logos was not anything made that was made. Hopefully we have a sense of this now, that all these things arise from this act of making a distinction, of saying a word, of calling into existence something. The first part of the passage, though, is still a little bit mysterious. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what does this mean? Well, this is where the mathematics and the science starts to kind of fade into the background a little bit, and we get more into the mysticism. Because to understand this requires more of a direct insight into the nature of distinction. And this is part of the beauty of this kind of worldview that might develop is that it could show how science and mystical cosmology unfolds from this idea of distinction, but then it also shows how it all collapses back into the lack of distinction. And so this is one way in which the not only does the worldview point beyond itself, but the worldview itself kind of collapses. Uh, the very language that's used to express the worldview, if you trace it back to its source, it just kind of dissolves. So let's see if we can get a sense of this. First, we can look at it uh, a little bit analytically, and then we'll look at it more uh, meditatively and see if we can get some more insight into the nature of distinction. So let's go back to this blackboard, and in particular the circle on the blackboard. Normally, when I direct your attention to the circle, your attention is drawn to the circle itself and possibly to what's inside of it, as opposed to the rest of the room and the rest of the blackboard. And so the circle, the activity of drawing the circle, distinguishes those two spaces and directs your attention inside of this finite part of the space and ignores the rest of it. But if you'll notice, the circle not only divides these two spaces, but it also joins them. It's also what connects the two spaces to each other. And so this starts to hint at another aspect of the distinction that maybe we've overlooked. And so the idea here is that there's, there's two faces to this distinction, two aspects of it, and in delusion, we kind of lock onto one of them and we ignore the other. The activity of attention gets sucked into this limited part of awareness and ignores the rest of it. And insofar as this process is unconscious to us, then something like the circle will just seem to appear to us as having some kind of independent existence. It's just there. And we're, because we're not conscious of how the mind actually participates in its existence and making it stand out from everything else. So we can get a sense of how this operates in other parts of our lives as well. So, for example, if you're in a relationship with someone, part of knowing them involves uh, drawing distinctions, creating an image of who that person is, creating a conceptual understanding of who that person is. But if we lock onto that conceptual understanding as the reality, we're going to get into trouble because they're quickly going to slip out of it. <laughs> so we might then say, well, I won't draw any distinctions at all then. I'll try and not think anything about this person whatsoever. Well, then you end up not talking to them not thinking anything about them, not asking them what, they, uh, what they're thinking today, how their day was, or anything like this. And uh, there won't be much of a relationship there at all. And so the, the trick is to, is to draw these distinctions, but be aware that they're just distinctions we're drawing. These are just ideas we're creating, and we can play with them then more freely and say, oh, well, you don't fit that distinction. Well, let's erase it then and draw another one, and let's play with that one. And a similar thing happens in science, very similar in fact. What we do is we create a theory about the world. We draw a bunch of distinctions, and we say, well, maybe the world is like this. And we actually 
are very precise about this and formulate it mathematically and correspond it with uh, what our instruments are reading and all of this. It gets very elaborate. And we test the theory against nature. And nature comes back. Sometimes nature fits the theory. Sometimes nature doesn't. Well, if we're locked onto that theory and we say, no, the world has to be like this, well, then we'll be ignoring all these parts of nature. And this happens sometimes when when scientists get locked into a particular worldview. But the, the essence of science is that, no, these are all hypotheses, and you're supposed to be able to throw out one theory if it doesn't match your experiments, and, well, you develop a new one. And that's the whole game or play of science, is to keep refining these theories of nature. And so one experiment doesn't match your theory, well, you redraw the distinctions. You adapt the theory so that it, it matches nature. And, and what this results in is a deepening and deepening uh, kind of insight into the laws of nature. The structure of nature reveals itself more and more, gets deeper and more subtle. And so we go into a deeper relationship with nature in this way by allowing the distinctions to be seen as uh, imaginary rather than locking on to the distinctions as real or just refusing to draw them at all. So there's this kind of play between uh, neither taking the distinctions as absolutely real or refusing to draw them at all and having them be totally uh, non-existent. So the idea is to allow the distinctions to be drawn, but to be aware of what's happening when these distinctions are being drawn. And we can get a sense of this kind of balance with the idea of symmetry, for example, a perfect equilateral triangle with all equal sides on it also has a, a kind of rotational symmetry. You can rotate a triangle, uh, I guess in this case it would be 120 degrees, and basically you're not changing the triangle. And yet you have changed it. You've rotated it. And so there's a difference there. We're drawing a distinction. Yes, we're changing it. We're rotating it. We're make, creating some difference here. And yet we're saying we haven't changed anything. And so there's kind of a paradoxical thing going on here where you change it, but you don't change it. And so this is hinting at something similar to this idea of a distinction neither being totally absolute or totally non-existent. You can also see this in your very perception of objects. So, for example, you look at this chalkboard. Is it distinct from you? Well, if there were an absolute real distinction between you and the chalkboard, there'd be no way for the chalkboard to relate to you whatsoever. There's an absolute separation and distinction there. But you're seeing the chalkboard, so there's some kind of connection here. There's some common basis between you and the chalkboard. And so the distinction can't be totally real. It has to kind of be permeable or something. It can't be an absolute separation. There has to be some common ground there for you to have an experience of the chalkboard. Well, then you might say, well, then there's no distinction at all. Well, insofar as the chalkboard is appearing as an object, there's kind of an appearance of a distinction. And so on the one hand, distinctions are appearing. On the other hand, they can't really be there. And so by looking at your experience in this way, you can also get the sense of how the distinctions are appearing, and yet they're not real. They're imaginary. You can also see this in experiences like, well, Joel often likes to talk about movies, how images are projected onto a screen, and normally we, we don't have a problem uh, identifying objects and characters and scenes on the screen. We can make all these distinctions. Oh, yeah, they're the person, they're coming onto the screen, and they're doing this, and they're talking to this other person. We can make all these distinctions, but we never get fooled into believing that this is anything more than a play of color and light on a screen being projected. We know that it's not real. And the other analogy, of course, is the dream. When we're dreaming, uh, it's all just imagination taking place. And we can draw distinctions between characters and events and things in the dream. But when we wake up, well, of course, there really wasn't a person there, or a monster chasing us, or whatever it was that we dreamed. It was all just imagined to be there. And so these distinctions are being made, but they're not real. 
They're not, they don't have an ultimate reality to them. But to really get a sense of this first part of the, of the Gospel of John, we have to go a little deeper than this, because it's saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what does that mean? Well, we really have to look at the ultimate nature of this distinction that's taking place. We've seen that it's, it sort of has this imaginary quality to it. It's not any absolute distinction that's being created. But what really is the ultimate nature of this activity of distinction? If you look at the circle again on the chalkboard, and you imagine, you direct your attention to the circle, and you pay attention to what's happening, this very activity of the mind going towards the circle is itself something that's happening in, in consciousness. And then you cannot look at the circle, and then it's not happening. That direction of attention is not happening. And so this very activity is itself something that's arising in consciousness and can pass away in consciousness. And you can notice it comes and it goes. And it comes and it goes as attention is directed to one thing and then to another and then not directed to anything at all. So like in dreamless sleep, your attention isn't directed towards anything. That activity isn't taking place. Nothing's manifesting. So what's the invariant, what's the substrate of all of this? Well, if you look at this circle, one thing to notice is that when you focus in on the circle, does everything else in the visual field turn black? You can ignore everything else, but that doesn't like black it out. It doesn't make it disappear from consciousness or awareness. It just It's just that you kind of ignore it. And so you focus in on the circle, but that doesn't destroy uh, awareness or uh, appearance happening in awareness. And so you, you look at the, at the circle, but in the periphery of awareness, I'm still over here. There's a sense in which you know that this image of me, in any case, is over here beside the circle. Now, what's interesting about this is that it doesn't require your attention in order for this part of awareness to still be there. And there's a quality of consciousness to what's over here in the periphery of awareness. Even though your attention's focused on the circle, there's still awareness over here. It may not be uh, really vivid, like the center of the circle, but there's still awareness in, of a visual field over here. It doesn't just turn black. And so there's a consciousness over here, an awareness over here that doesn't require your attention to be there and to have this quality of being known. And so this pure awareness doesn't require this activity of attention. It's just there. It doesn't need you to be looking at it. It's just there. And so Huang Po, the, the Zen master, says, Every phenomena that exists is a creation of thought. Therefore, I need but empty my mind to discover that all of them are void. It is the same with sense objects, to whichever of the myriads of categories they belong. The entire void stretching out in all directions is of one substance with mind. And so the idea here is that behind this activity of attention is just what is. It's that things are empty in the sense that they don't require us to make them exist in order, to, in order for the one substance of mind to be there. And so, is it possible to, to behold or gaze upon this circle without making it into something, without that activity of attention, to just see 
what you might say, the one nature of mind over here, to just see that it is awareness. <clears throat> you might play with making it into a thing, directing your attention, making that into a circle, and then relaxing that, and seeing what that's like. Nagarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher, says, the ultimate reality is unmade. It will never be other than what it always is. So the ultimate reality is just this self-existent awareness that doesn't need your attention to be creating things out of it. And it's just always what it always is. It's unmade. It doesn't require you to make anything out of it. Muhammad says, in the beginning was Allah, and beside him there was nothing, and he remains as he was. So it's just there. Shankar, the Hindu philosopher, says, No matter what a deluded man may think he's perceiving, he's really seen Brahman and nothing else but Brahman. He sees Mother of Pearl and imagines that it is silver. He sees Brahman and imagines that it's the universe. But this universe, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. And Longchenpa, the Buddhist says, although not really existing, things still appear. From their own side, however, such things are void by nature. These void appearances do not actually exist. They have no foundation, no support, no beginning, middle, or end. You must realize that from primordial time, everything by nature is pure. So they're pointing to what's happening or, or the substrate of this uh, awareness before distinctions are made, before attention is directed onto something. There's just this empty nature of mind. So you could try this out in a meditation. Just try and rest in that awareness and then watch as distinctions are drawn, as attention is directed here and then there, and get a sense for what that's like. But to ultimately understand what the Gospel of John is pointing to, that the Word is God, you have to see that this act of distinguishing is itself not different from that awareness that's before the distinguishing. If you're making a distinction between distinguishing and not distinguishing, then you're in trouble. <clears throat> So Nicholas of Pusa, the Christian philosopher and mystic, says, In God we must not conceive of distinction and indistinction, for example, as two contradictories, but we must conceive of them as antecedently existing in their own most simple beginning, where distinction is not other than indistinction. And Dionysius a founder of Christian mysticism, says the one is there before every oneness amid multiplicity, before every part and whole, before the definite and the indefinite, before the limited and the unlimited. It is there defining all things that have being, defining being itself. Nagarjuna says when difference is not evident, there is neither difference nor identity. Chuang Tzu, the Taoist, said, at the beginning of the beginning, even nothing did not exist. <laughs> In the Buddhist Lankavatara Sutra, it says, for the wise, all things are wiped away, and even the state of imagelessness ceases to exist. And Meister Eckhart says, God dwells in the nothing at all that was prior to nothing. So if we were to represent the logos in a kind of symbolic language, it would be by a distinction that you could represent as a circle on the chalkboard here. And if you were to distinguish that from the space underneath it, which you could think of as the chalkboard, then you'd have distinctions, and then you'd have the chalkboard that the distinction is distinct from. But ultimately, 
the distinction is not separate from the chalkboard. And mathematically, you could write that as a kind of equation between the distinction and the empty space next to it. And so this would be a symbolic way of saying form is emptiness, as the Buddhists put it. And this gives us a sense of what the Gospel of John means when it says, and the word was God. Form is emptiness. And so to come back to that passage from the Gospel of John that I read in the beginning, if we were to paraphrase this a little bit, we could say, in the beginning was the distinction, and the distinction was in God, and the distinction was God. Or we could say, the distinction was in consciousness, and the distinction was consciousness. By distinction were all things made, and without distinction was not anything made that was made. So we've interpreted the Gospel of John, and we've related it to mathematics and physics, and so hopefully you have a sense now of how it is that we could possibly have a worldview where all of this can be kind of coherently uh, held within one framework. Now, if there are any questions... <laughs> Or comments? I was thinking maybe you could comment on one picture, and it's built up of tiny little colored segments that look like they could be wallpaper, they could be anything. Mm -hmm. When you learn how to look at them properly, you have to let your eyes space out. I think. Right. Uh, forms emerge out of that. They exist out of that. And then when you look back at the at the piece of paper as a piece of paper, it's just all these. You know, and the forms have a three-dimensional quality to yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of like what you were talking about. That I don't know if that's a special case or something, but the forms don't exist out there on the piece of paper. Right. They only exist in your head. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example, I think. Joel? Just a similar example from everyday life of uh, emptiness of things is if you're, especially if you're a meditator, but if not, you probably have had the experience of looking at a rug for a while or a wall or something, and you start to see faces appear. And you see the faces. I mean, there's no question you're seeing the faces, but you also know that they are empty. I mean, that they are not, you know, that it's a, it's the play of consciousness that is producing them. So it's just another example, a common example of things that we do recognize, even under delusion. In, uh, in Spencer Brown's book, you, you, you mentioned that the, the very basic thing was distinction and no distinction. This, is one of his axioms that those are, that those are equal? Or would that collapse the whole thing? That would collapse the whole thing. Yeah, you have to treat them as if they were distinct in order for things to develop. Uh, he does have an interesting exercise in the back of the book. I think it's in his commentary. Mm -hmm in one of the appendices, where he goes through a little argument and concludes that the uh, that they're equal. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of does a little undoing of, mm -hmm. of the distinction in that. Mm -hmm. Being equal, is that the same as being able to perceive both simultaneously? Is it possible to perceive distinction and non-distinction simultaneously? It's not that you're directing attention at one thing and you're also directing attention at another thing. That would be like jumping back and forth between the two. It's more like what's before making a distinction at all. And so it's not like you're perceiving one thing and you're also perceiving another. It's, the, it's like what's before perceiving. Is that related to the statement you made? Um, if you if you make a distinction between the distinction and no distinction, then you're in trouble. Would you like to explain? That? <laughs> <laughs>
Well, there's this activity of, of directing attention at things and making distinctions. And that arises out of the lack of that activity. And so there, there can be a sense of that happening and a sense of that not happening. And if you're distinguishing those from each other, then you're still caught in a distinction. So there's this activity of making a distinction, and you think that that's something real that's happening apart from when it's not happening. An example. <laughs> if you are sleeping, there aren't any objects arising in consciousness at all. You're not directing attention at all. And then let's say you start to wake up, and let's say you hear a bird chirp, the first thing that you kind of become aware of, and attention goes to that and kind of makes something out of it and says, oh, that's a bird chirping, and kind of latches onto it, if there's a perception of that activity as separate from what was before it, then you're drawing a distinction. You could think of it also as a distinction in time here. There's like, well, what happened before I just was aware of this bird? Well, there was a non-awareness of the bird. I must have been sleeping. It must have been dreamless sleep. And that's like a thought about what was before that. And it's based on drawing a distinction in time, as it were, or you could think of it as, well, something that maybe is existing underneath this, or in any case, it's an idea that you're, you're sort of thinking about your own experience, and you're saying, well, this arising, this making of a distinction, seems different from not making a distinction. And that itself is a distinction, a very kind of subtle one. So your mind is always caught in form instead of recognizing the emptiness that is the basis of all form. You start getting in trouble, it's because you're caught in form or being mm -hmm. rather than the ground, being aware of the ground of being. It's like you just get caught in a loop right. of form. The circle of samsara, Joel? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I once heard uh, a Korean Zen master, Son Sanin, talk, and he said... That's what you just said is absolutely true, or relatively true, but also the opposite is true. And they have a saying that if you get caught in emptiness, not even the Buddha can save you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah? If this was a new world view that was adopted by most people, what would that look like? Hopefully we'll find out. <laughs> I don't know. Or what difference would it make? What difference would it make? Well, hopefully it would it would help spiritual seekers in that this worldview would be more transparent than the worldview we have. And so it would be it would make it easier for people to see through delusion and to follow a spiritual path, and to have a spiritual path make sense in the terms of the worldview they were brought up in. In our worldview, there's this kind of huge disconnect. Well, you're brought up in this worldview, and then you have to make some kind of big break with how everyone else is thinking in order to follow a spiritual path. And they look at you and say, well, they're into all this weird stuff. In a sacred worldview, it's not weird stuff there's more of an opportunity for that to naturally take place than in a worldview that is kind of closed off to a sacred context, like a materialist worldview is. Yeah. Can I ask Joel what he meant by the Buddhist emptiness? If you get caught in emptiness, not even the Buddha can say you? Well, one of the things that we practice for uh, is actually to have an experience of not making distinctions, because we compulsively make distinctions all the time. So meditation, you could say one of the major primary reasons to, to train the mind in meditation is to train it to stop making distinctions so we can experience, I mean, that's not, we can be aware, become aware of that primordial awareness that is before all distinctions. But we also make the mistake of thinking that that, that this state in itself is itself uh, somehow has ultimate value. 
because we've made a distinction between distinction and non-distinction. You see what I mean? And so we're constantly trying to escape from the world of distinction into some world of emptiness. And that itself becomes a delusion. We have to surrender that even. So we really have to, we have to discover this truth that is the truth, whether there's distinction being made or no distinctions being made, that transcends both emptiness and form and, you know, and so forth and so on. So I think, uh, for spiritual seekers, the danger is at least perhaps not become stuck in emptiness, but become stuck in the idea of emptiness. Uh, worldly people don't—they're not concerned with that. Their problem is they're, they're you know pathologically stuck in form. Uh, <laughs> but we want to be able to transcend both ultimately as a spiritual seeker. Thank you. Yeah. It sounds like this new world view would would invite us into. Invite us out of the either-or thinking of the materialistic view into this both-and thinking, you know, where things would become, ideas would become more inclusive and much more developed and, and deeper, rather than this line of distinction, either-or, black and white, mm -hmm. you know. This kind of touches on what Damien was asking about earlier with whether Spencer Brown acknowledges that distinction is equal to the space or the void. Part of what allows him to develop everything in this book is the fact that he maintains this distinction, and you might say maintains it rigorously. But the, the trick is that he's aware that he's just playing and doing that. And so um, it's not that we can't... Uh, rigorously make distinctions and, and in a sense hold to them very clearly, but that we realize that we can let them go if we need to. And so in that sense, there's, there's this awareness of both and, but it's not exclusive of making uh, either or distinctions either. Yeah. Yeah. There's more freedom of thought, more mm -hmm. flexibility. Yeah. I keep going back to your very first drawing up there of the brackets, the <laughs> two brackets, shows me a set that's zero. Mm -hmm. And then those two brackets inside another two brackets shows me a set that we call one. Mm -hmm. And one is a set of brackets inside another set, a set of brackets around a set of brackets that are around nothing. Right. I, I think that's what you're talking about. <laughs> that it's all nothing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's part of the beauty of this. We've that created. You'd, you'd be able to take something like an equation of physics or something, and you could say, well, what is this? Well, it's a bunch of, uh, it's a bunch of distinctions. And you trace them all back, and you say, well, these are built on other distinctions, and they're built on distinctions. You go all, all the way back to a distinction. Well, what's in that distinction? Well, nothing. And so it all is distinctions, but then at the bottom there's nothing. And then you can't even distinguish the distinction from the nothing in the end. What about, yeah? What about you in formulas like in physics formulas or more complicated ones when you have the unknown, like X, or mm -hmm. how do you, like if you were to break that down using the brackets and all that. I mean, there's all these numbers and things, and what do you do with the unknowns? Right, so what is a variable is another way of, mm -hmm. I think, saying or asking your question. Before you're introduced to X in school, you might remember way back in grade school if you were taught math this way, sometimes they just put a box, mm -hmm. and the idea is, you know, one plus empty box equals, you know, five, and then you have to figure out what goes in the box. And that's really the idea of X. You know, it's, it's an empty box. It's the idea that, well, there's a number here, but we don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And so here's the idea that um, basically what a variable is saying is that there are distinctions we could put here in order for the laws of distinction to balance out in whatever equation we're looking at. There, there is yet undetermined, and so there's a potentiality there to make a distinction. So in a way, it's kind of like a blank board before making a distinction. But we're, 
we're saying that it, it has a relationship to distinctions, and so we're, we're anticipating some distinction being filled in there to balance things out. It will ultimately be nothing anyway. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah? I'm kind of trying to figure out what exactly is the materialistic point of view then. I mean, how, how would... I mean, I, kind of, I have understanding of what you're saying because I you know, have some experience of, of this, but for someone who has a totally materialistic viewpoint, I guess I'm wondering how this would not make sense. So what is the, what is the, what is the mistake that the materialist worldview is making, and how do we bridge the gap there? Mm -hmm. Part of what I think happens is that in a materialist worldview, or really in any worldview, if we're kind of trapped in that, if we take the worldview to be real, then we're sucked into reducing everything to that idea of how everything is. So a materialist listening to this talk would, insofar as they're stuck in this way of viewing the world, would have to try and make sense of this in their own framework. And so they'd have to try and reduce it to something they could understand. And chances are it wouldn't make sense because they'd have to have these ideas be convoluted or they'd simply reduce it to something that would make it irrelevant. So, for example, in the materialist ideas that were basically these biological machines and well, what is consciousness and awareness is just sort of a trick of the neurons they are firing in certain patterns and they make us think that there's, there's something going on here. And really, scientists can't explain consciousness. They, they can explain activities of the brain and so on, and, and, but, but awareness itself is this, some of them call it the hard problem of consciousness, and they, they really can't go there because it's really non-material. And, well, how do you get from matter to something that isn't matter? It's, and so they end up having to reduce it to this, and then they can't really go anywhere with it. Yeah. Is that where is that where quark is? <laughs> Quarks are the fundamental particles of matter. There's actually a kind of a mystery about quarks because you can't like get an isolated quark um, by itself and look at it. And so, in a certain sense, they're theoretical constructs, but they're useful ideas in physics. And the idea is that. These particles, which are really related to symmetries in the theory, give rise to more complex forms of matter. And if you put it all together enough, then you get, so they say, everything we see. Joel? I think one interesting thing, and that this is just looking at towards the future, but uh, one of the things that physicists have done is they've invented these equations. They work. And then, especially when they got down to the subatomic level, they have to invent matter in order for the equations to refer to something. And so, you know, nobody's seen any subatomic particles. I mean, they're all ideas. They're all inventions to explain why this mathematics works. So maybe that's not necessary to do that. And also, by the way, once you start trying to think of them in terms of matter, you run into all these paradoxes of quantum mechanics and all that. But maybe it simply isn't necessary anymore. Maybe we can just dispense with having this idea that there's matter there. Maybe it's all distinction. And maybe we'll still, when we talk about a quark, we will be, we're actually talking about a kind of distinction, not about any kind of particle. So that might be one consequence of a shift of thinking that mm -hmm. could come from this kind of worldview. We just decided it's, it's redundant to talk about <laughs> matter. That's irrelevant to what we're doing. <laughs> I know it sounds wild, but if you think about it, you know, the revolutions in physics have been just, you know, as radical as can be. I mean, when, when uh, Copernicus first proposed that the sun was the center of our universe, rather than the earth, it, that was as, as wild an idea as I'm talking about. That was just inconceivable mm -hmm. to people. And that just it had nothing to do with the church. It was just a matter of people's experience. I mean, you just go outside and look, and you see the sun traveling around the earth. 
And in order for that theory to work, the Earth has to be spinning. Everybody knows you spin a potter's wheel, things fly off. Yeah. Nothing's flying off the Earth here. The Earth isn't moving. I mean, it's so obvious the Earth is stationary. Yeah. Yeah. So these ideas, it's amazing how much worldview ideas change our actual perception and experience of the world we live in. That's one of the reasons that they're so important as a, from a collective point of view. So that none of it matters. <laughs> no matter. <laughs> this idea, um, by the way, if you want to explore this idea that uh, was just being discussed here a little bit more philosophically, Dr. Wolf in The Philosophy of Consciousness Without an Object talks about this shift in perspective from, uh, he talks about the idea of ponderable matter and how, well, maybe it's possible to do science uh, without this idea of ponderable matter. And, and he also talks about a shift in perspective and compares it to the Copernican Revolution, and he calls it a shift in the base of reference. First, in philosophy, there was a shift from the objective as the base of reference, which is basically kind of a materialist point of view, to the subjective component, but then that's still based on a kind of distinction between subjective and objective. And his philosophy says, well, let's just shift the base of reference to consciousness itself and see what happens when we do that. So if you want to look into that a little bit more philosophically, this is the place to go. Could we go back to your example of the uh, waking up? If I recast that a little bit, I said, okay, first there's uh, uh, sort of nothing awareness, and then there's uh, sound awareness, and then there's bird thought awareness, but it's all awareness. So how does that fit with <laughs> distinction and non-distinction? Well, you've just made a bunch of distinctions. Yeah. Right? And But they're all the same stuff. Is the distinction? Well, they're, they're all awareness. Okay. So in that sense, there isn't any distinction. And yet you've made distinctions. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Does that help or hinder? <laughs> well, I guess it's a question of, of seeing that in a direct and immediate way. Um, I mean, you can think that, reflect on that as you've just done and as I've explained here, but to really have the insight into that truth is another matter. So if if you take some of these ideas and not just think about them, mm -hmm. but meditate on them, then you might start to have this kind of shift in your own base of reference into uh, another way of viewing everything. Okay. So with that, maybe I'll conclude and bring the formal part of the day to an end. And if you'd like to check out the library through the double doors, feel free to do so. And I'll be here afterwards if you want any follow-up questions. So, thanks for coming.